Anybody watch the Belmont yesterday? I know the, some friends were there. And uh, so uh, it's funny, right? Because nobody really cares about horse racing until the Triple Crown thing kind of comes around and then most of us watch. And I remember uh, when I was a, a young boy, uh, I remember Seattle slew and uh, affirmed. And they won in 77 and 78. And I remember uh, I went to, and you know, I was 10 at the time, and I'm thinking to myself, well, this is easy. Like, you know, the Triple Crown happens all the time. And uh, then it never happened again since then. But I was at a, you ever go to these family reunions where you don't really know, oh, I forgot the offering, didn't I? <laughs> Far be it from me to forget the offering. So the ushers are going to come forward. They're going to collect your offerings and your, your connection cards and all the rest. And I'm going to keep pressing forward in this. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Reed, for that toothless grin you were giving me from the back, reminding me that I had forgotten about this. So my mom and dad took me to a family reunion of a bunch of people that I didn't know who they were. They were distant cousins and all the rest. And so a few weeks ago, Joan and I got an invite from my mother's cousin's son to a family reunion picnic full of no one I knew. And I said to Joan, when I saw it was the Belmont, I said, this horse is going to win the Triple Crown because the last time I went to a family reunion in 1977. So there I was in the backyard yesterday with my little phone watching it live. And it was really a pretty cool thing to watch. Now... It reminded me of something I had done when I was a little younger also, when I first started my career. You know how when you're young, you try to impress people with your vocabulary? And when you get a little older, you realize, you sh usually you painfully realize somewhere along the line you shouldn't do that anymore. Um, my kids do it now, and I'll be like, you realize you have no idea what that word you just used meant, right? And, uh, and so I'm trying to teach them before they learn as painfully as I did. Because what happened to me was, uh, I was a young professional. We were uh, sitting in, uh, in, in 550 Broad Street in Newark, New Jersey. We all had our suits and ties on, and there was a manager there, and it was another guy that was my peer. And we got into, like, joking around with each other about, like, who was cooler, who was tougher, who was more machismo in the room. And so I was trying to find something to compare myself to, something that would really, you know, to say what kind of a, a real stud I was. And so I said, you don't understand. I'm like a gelding horse. Now, see, those of you that laugh know what a gelding horse is. But those of you that don't, a gelding horse is one who's had a procedure that makes him less than a stud. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and so they all start dying laughing at this, and I'm, I'm, you know, kind of standing there looking silly. This morning, I want to tell you the story, and it relates to what we're going to do next week. The, the biggest week of the year for us at this church, Baptism Week. It relates to that. It's the story in, in one way or another of, uh, probably better put another way, but of a gelding man and how that relates to you potentially being baptized next week. I, I spoke to you last week about sitting on this fence. See, the Bible's very clear. We're called to do a lot of things. One thing we're not called to do is sit on the fence when it comes to our faith in Jesus. We had a big gathering of folks last week, new folks over at our church at, for lunch. And they were so wonderful, excited about the church, very complimentary about our ministries, our children's ministry and our youth ministry and Steve and Katie and the worship teams and small groups. And, and they were nice to me. They were saying things like, well, John, we like your sermons because you help us understand God. You know, we, 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 never, we, we haven't been able to hear anybody talk about God the way you do. And I like to come and I like to hear that. And it makes me feel good. And I love that. I love when people say that. Except here's the deal. If you, if you just keep coming, 
because John's a good uh, teacher and he, and he makes you feel good and he teaches you that God loves you. I do want to do that. But if I don't move you to get off the fence and profess Jesus and start following him, then I have failed as your pastor. Because the Bible is very clear that the worst place you can be is sitting on the fence of faith, professing, in a sense, some admiration for Jesus, but not truly following Jesus, not giving your life to him. The Bible actually says you would be better off to eat, drink, partied up on this side rather than sitting on the fence. The fence is a dangerous place to be, so I want you to get off the fence. And in Scripture, whenever anybody got off the fence with faith in Jesus, whenever everybody said, you know, I'm going to move away from just being one of those people that say, well, he was a good prophet and a great teacher. I'm going to move off of that and say he is who he said he is. He's my savior. He's my Lord. He's my king. He's my friend. Whenever anybody confessed that and believed it deeply in their heart, they got off the fence and the first move was into some water somewhere to get baptized. And so that's why I'm talking about this, this these two weeks. I'm, I'm asking you to cross over to move from being on the fence or, or, or maybe a person not of faith to a person that gives your life to Jesus. Now, I'm going to talk to you about this Ethiopian eunuch. It's a kind of famous story in the Bible. And uh, let's just to make sure that we're all on the same page with the words again so you don't look foolish like me one day. Um, I want to talk to you about what a eunuch is. If you don't know what a eunuch is... He's kind of the male, the man version of the gelding horse. He is, he has castrated himself. Now, kings in the first century, rulers in the first century, they would oftentimes demand eunuchs serve them. Now, if, if you're a king, why in the world would you want a eunuch to be your servant? You might be thinking, you know, I want kind of like a manly man, a virile man, a strong man to defend me. Why were the kings oftentimes putting eunuchs in charge of their royal household and in charge of their money? Well, there's a few reasons. The first is that kings often had harems. If you're going to leave the harem with somebody, well, it's best to leave them with a the eunuch, we might all agree, Right? And the second thing, you see this a lot of times in Scripture, is there is all kinds of um, uh, overthrows of rulers. And oftentimes those overthrows are because I start to think, as I'm in the king's army, you know what, if I, if I gather some people around me, we could take this guy, and then my family, me and my family, will be the king. And all of my descendants will wind up ruling this land. Well, if you're a eunuch... I don't have to worry about you thinking that all of your descendants might take this land, might keep this land. A eunuch could be entrusted, could be entrusted to not engage in plotting any overthrows. They couldn't set up a dynasty of their own. And so it was common for these kings and these rulers to demand that a, a, a eunuch be in charge of things. Now, eunuchs, it's interesting. You need to remember now, uh, it's funny, there's all this, um, uh, well, we'll get into that, but the, the this was not performed surgically in a sterile environment. This was, you really had to want to be a eunuch back in the day to be a eunuch. Um, I won't get into how it was done. But it became their identity. I'm a eunuch. So Luke, who's writing this story about the early church in the book of Acts, he tells a story about an Ethiopian eunuch, one who was a eunuch from uh, Ethiopia in Africa, and a disciple named Philip. And this story, if you don't get the background of the story, you would read right by it. But the early church, they would have gotten, they heard this story, and they gasped. It was so scandalous to them. 
Because these two, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, they are the original Oscar Madison and Felix Unger. I mean, you could see as he was meeting them in the desert. I mean, these two did not go together. Philip was a follower of Jesus. He was a member of the early church. And Philip came from a small Jewish village called Bethsaida. And Bethsaida, Bethsaida, it was part of one of the most religiously devout regions outside of Jerusalem. Now, let me explain to you what went on in Bethsaida. In Bethsaida, it was a very strict following of rules about what you could do and what you couldn't do. In Bethsaida, you were brought up understanding being taught the laws about what you could eat and what you couldn't eat. In Bethsaida, you were brought up understanding what you could do on the Sabbath and what you couldn't do on the Sabbath. And Bethsaida, it was pushed deeply into you about when you could attend religious festivals, when you had to attend religious festivals, when you needed to go to Jerusalem. In Bethsaida, it was put on you what you should pray, how you should pray, when you should pray. In Bethsaida, it was told you there are certain people that are clean and there are certain people that are dirty. There are certain people that God loves and there are certain people that are far from God. And this was deeply indoctrinated into the heart of Philip. The laws and the rules of who were in and who were out were quite extensive, and they were well known and quite religiously observed. So Philip, he comes from this small world of very committed Jewish worshipers of God. He had become a follower of Christ. But, but in, that, in that day, all of the followers were Jewish. They were bringing their Judaism into this faith. And so now we enter the story. And as we do, let me just give you the background of it. Philip had just been in Samaria. Samaria was a land. Remember, Jesus said to his church, he said, you're going to be witnesses of mine to Judea and Jerusalem. Well, that was easy. That was nearby. And to Samaria, well, they didn't like the Samaritans. The Samaritans were, in a sense, half-breeds. They were kind of half-Jewish people. They considered them dogs. But Philip had just been in Samaria. And he had, the Spirit of God had been moving very strongly there. And a lot of people were coming to Christ in Samaria. And so now this is what's going on. He leaves Samaria, and we pick up the scripture. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And if you pause in the story for a moment again, just so you understand, the angel's instructions to go south towards Gaza would have seemed ridiculous. Philip is having a profitable ministry. Lots of people are coming to Christ. So far, we're getting Judea and Jerusalem, and, and even the Samaritans are listening. And this angel comes and says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go on a desert road. I want you to go to a place where there's probably not going to be anybody. It would have seemed very strange at the moment. But here's what I want you to consider. As you and I care about the 92,962 people that live within one town of our church that, that are unchurched folks that don't know God at deep levels, as we think about how we're going to reach them, here's the first thing I would like you to consider. God is likely calling you to go to a place that's not f forefront in your mind. It's likely not the place. It's likely to a person that you are thinking that is not who God wants me to go to. That makes no sense. In contemporary language, I don't know who that, I don't know that if, if that's a neighbor, if that's a cubicle in your office, if, that, if that's to a party where you'd go, God can't possibly want me to go there. But Philip was being led by the Spirit of God, and, and, and it made no sense. And just like Abraham, right, the father of the faith, that God called to go to a land he did not know, Philip heads out on a desert road. And so for those of us that want to be used by God to find our purpose in, in serving him, oftentimes this initial call of God on your life doesn't come with perfect instruction and perfect sense, it, it, it's go. So the scripture says he starts out 
And on the way, he meets an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official, just like we talked about, an important official in charge of all of the treasury of the Kandaki, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. I might be mispronouncing that. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot, and he was reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. And so what the scripture's teaching is that this is a God-fearing man. This is somebody who has somehow likely heard about the Jewish God. The Jewish people were the only people at the time that were a monotheistic people. He probably found that interesting. And he had made a likely week or two-week journey to Jerusalem to worship God. But do you know what happens when eunuchs get to the temple in Jerusalem? They're not part of the in crowd. They're part of the out crowd. He can't get in the temple to worship God. As a eunuch, he's forbidden, frankly, to, to associate with the people of God. Even if he could have converted to Judaism, because he was a Gentile, he would have been kept in what was called the temple, the Gentile court, far from the presence of God. He couldn't fulfill his objective, and he likely felt distant as he, as he drove home. Scripture says the Spirit told Philip again, go to that chariot and stay near it. So the man ran up to the chariot and he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked. As you hear this, this is going to remind you of John Roswick's story about this, this man that he talked to that owned the home. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip said. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And this is the passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before a cheer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. This is, this is a pro prophecy in the Old Testament. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And then the eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is this prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And then Philip, just like John did with Psalm 40, and then Philip began with this very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Here's what I want you to understand. I need you to believe this because it's so important. There are people all around you. God is working in their heart. You might not see it or understand it. You might look at them and say, there's no way on earth that God is working in that guy's life. But he is. And God will move you, take you to those places if you will surrender your spirit. Let me give you my own story. Many of you know, you know, I grew up with a God consciousness, with a God heart, but I did not know God because nobody had told me about him. And when I, I first met my wife, she came from a, a very religious family, a very observant family. We've been through this before. You know, the no drinking, the no dancing, the no prom, the no TV, the, the no playing cards in the house, the no records, the no music. And there was only one thing that that family agreed on at the time, and it was that you should not go out with him. <laughs> I don't even know that had to do with their faith. It might have just been some other reason. But, but why? Because I wasn't in I was out. I didn't understand that because no one explained it to me. But God had been working in my life. God had been calling me to himself. My mom has tape recordings. I've told you this. My tape recordings of me as a little kid sitting in my bed with a tape recorder talking to God. And I used to record myself talking to God on my bunk bed and I would save them. My mom found them one day. And uh, when I, uh, I found out she found them, apparently I erased all of them because I was embarrassed. But. So I had this God consciousness thing, but how would I understand unless somebody talked to me? Because I was out. And one night on Christmas Eve in 1986 or 1987, if I knew that night would change my life, I would have I've told you what year it was for certain. But it was Christmas Eve. My brother-in-law, who had married into this family, took me out to the, to, to the diner in Roxbury. And he 
did just what John Roswick did. He did just what, this, uh, what Philip did. He explained it to me. I got it. And so I'm telling you that God is likely calling you to people to be this agent of reconciliation in people's lives. And it's likely, if you would listen to the Spirit of God where he's calling you, it's likely to places where, where, where you're, not, you're not going to be maybe comfortable and you might be surprised. So we pick up the story, right? As they traveled down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? See, nobody gasped here because this would have made people gasp in the first century. A eunuch wants to be baptized? What could keep him from being baptized? The answer racing through Philip's head was, I could give you a list of 20 things that should keep you from being baptized. I can't baptize you. Do you know where I'm from? If I'm seen talking to you, I'm going to kind of lose my religious credentials. I'm from Bethsaida, man. According to the law, a eunuch is, is excluded from being part of what we're doing. The law is clear on that. And as a good conservative Jew, Philip would have viewed the eunuch as damaged goods. As somebody beyond the grace of God that God poss couldn't possibly be, be, be working in his life. He should, have he should have refused to baptize him. If Philip baptizes the eunuch, he's, he's breaking all of the serious rules that he was raised to respect and follow. And it was these rules that determined how, what your standing was before God. He's raised in the tradition, he's reared in a tradition about who's in, who's out. Who God loves, who, who God doesn't. Who can come to God, who can't. And what does Philip do? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Philip not only speaks to him, Philip not only witnesses to him, Philip baptizes him. And please, 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 this is just kind of an interesting thing for me. I think this helps us perspectivize. Please, white, upper middle class men in Hills Community Church, don't miss this. While Samaritans had been coming to faith in Jesus, by birth they were half Jewish. This Ethiopian eunuch, this dark-skinned Ethiopian eunuch is the first Gentile convert recorded in the Bible. I want to say that again so we all, we're all tracking here. They say that 10 o'clock in the morning, on Sunday morning, is the most segregated hour in, in the United States. After its Jewish origins, you and I, it, the origin of the church is an African church. It was the first Gentile convert. The first Christian was a black man. I say, I just, this, I just moves my heart so much. Because so much of the time the church has been on the wrong side of so many things. The brilliance, the heart-piercing, heart-transforming message of Scripture is there is no black or white at the foot of the cross. There is no in and out. There is no despised by God, loved by God. Jesus is calling all that would come. Here's what the scripture teaches. You need to understand how, how shocking this is. The scripture says in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Do you know how offensive that is if you're part of the in crowd and suddenly somebody tells you you're not in, everybody's in. 
There is no slave or free. Do you know how offensive that is if you're free? There is no male or female. All of you are one in Christ Jesus. So two questions for you this morning. Who have you fenced off? Who have you decided? Who have you said that they're too far off? They're too different. They're too distant. They're too much of a partier. They're too dirty. Their language is too bad. Their sin is too offensive. They're just different from me. God could not possibly want me to to pray for them. God could not possibly want me to interact with them. God could not possibly want me to love on them. Who has so sinned against you? Who has so hurt you? So betrayed you, so angered you, so disgusted you that you haven't sought to be an agent of reconciliation, of salt and light, of bringing to them God. But if you're honest with yourself, you've actually thought to yourself, God, please keep your grace from them. Who have you fenced off? Who have you given up on? Who? You pull the newspaper out from this week and I, I could show you a lot of people that we give up on. Who have you fenced off? My, my son, it was Westmar Central's prom this week. And uh, so juniors and seniors go home half day. So uh, he was telling me the story. You know, there's a system in the high school. I don't know if you know it. See, this is everywhere. There's in and out everywhere. And a church that does it better than anybody. But there's in and out everywhere. In the lunchroom at Westmar Central, for example, you know, the whole school has lunch at one time, one period. You're talking about like 13, 14 our kids all have lunch at one period. So... You can't all fit in the lunchroom. So guess who gets to eat in the lunchroom? Juniors and seniors. They can eat in the lunchroom. Now, the great unwashed freshmen, <laughs> right? Where can the freshmen eat? Does anybody know the first service? They all knew the lay of the land. Where do the freshmen eat at West Mars? Anybody know? Their butts sit in the hallway somewhere, right, on the ground. And they, I see parents asking their kids, and their kids are confirming this story. They eat in the hallway. They better not show their face in the, ca- the cafeteria. Now, if you're a sophomore, you get a little higher stature. Uh, my son Caleb made sure to tell me that when he was a sophomore, he actually made his way into the lunchroom. But, but uh, there's a higher stature. You're allowed in the gym. So that's a little bit better, right? And when you're a junior or a senior, then you could sit in the lunchroom. And you would think that would be enough. Wouldn't you? I mean, that's enough social stratification. That's enough class warfare at Westmar Central High School. But that's not enough. Because if you're really cool, if you really can get to the highest of highs, do you know where you eat at Westmore Central? You eat on the stage. That's like the coolest of the cool. I remember the day Courtney first came home and told me she made it to the stage. (laughs) Called up the grandparents. We all went out and had dinner. It was a celebration of her coolness. <laughs> the boys have yet to come home and tell me they made it to the stage. But you see, your kids are familiar with this. You're familiar with this. This is the way we live our lives. We love it when we're part of the in crowd, but we hate it when we're part of the out crowd. There's something in our nature that moves us quite naturally to saying that we're right, we're in, we're hip, we got it. You don't stay out, not interested. So I don't know what it is in your life. I'm praying that this morning that God would reveal all of us to all of us. The places where we've just said about people, they're no good. God's not interested. Keep them out. I don't want them in. They're bad. 
It's the beauty of our faith. The kingdom of God, which Jesus said he was initiating, he invites everyone into it. Jesus doesn't care about your past or your family or your old faith practices. He doesn't care about the state of your sin, the state of your marriage, the state of your finances, what your latest political views are, or what your besetting sin is. Jesus says, you're in. You're in. Come. He's unlike any other religious figure that's ever existed. Every other religion tells you you got to do something, you got to say something, you got to clean up your act, you got to work harder, you got to do more, you got to perform this way, and then maybe you could, you could get to God. You could get to maybe a higher level of understanding. Our God, He comes to us and for us, and He calls His people to tear down every wall that keeps people from faith. And so on a very practical level, I want to ask you the question the Ethiopian eunuch asked. If you have not been baptized, if you haven't crossed this line of faith, if you haven't followed that crossing by, by this public confirmation of your decision, what is it that keeps you from being baptized? I'm just going I'm I'm to just give you one answer. There's a lot of answers I know. There's one answer. And it's this. Baptism oftentimes carries with it a lot of religious Stuff And because we were all brought up and reared in different traditions, when, when you come into a, a new tradition and somebody does something different, especially as it goes with religion, we put our walls up and our fences up and, and, and we can get our feelings hurt and we can get, you know, it, it becomes kind of private. And, and, and so I know there's a lot of tradition that comes into the room. When we talk about baptism, we start touching on that stuff. When somebody does something different, it can be threatening. We get our defenses up. So I just want to go over for a second this, the history of baptism. This word baptism, see, when you hear it, you think religion. It's not really a religious word at all. It's quite interesting. See, most words in the Bible, when they're translated, they're translated from, in the New Testament from Greek to English. But the word baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo. And baptizo, they didn't actually have a good word for translating it into. So they actually just left it as baptism. But if you go back in the history of that word, all that word really meant was like a full immersion, a full soaking, a full washing. It wasn't a religious word in the first century. You could baptizo your clothes. When you all go home today, you're going to have lunch. You're going you're to put your dishes in the dishwasher and you're going to baptizo your dishes. You, you know, this is what we do. We, we baptizo things. But what made it take on this religious thing? Well, here's what was happening. In the first century, when, people, when, Jew, when Jewish people wanted to come to know the one true God, when, when they started to understand monotheism, and they started to say, you know what, I think the Jews might have this right. I think that might be the one true God. I would like to come and worship this God. There was a lot of things that you had to do. There was because you weren't in, you were out. So there were several things that you could do. You could have a ceremonial meal. And if you were a man, you could have a surgery. Um, which, again, would keep the eunuch out. There's all these things. One of the things you would do is you would have a ceremonial washing, right? And you would get yourself, and what would happen with the washing was, the washing would be a public identification to everybody, to your Gentile friends. I am no longer believing in the, the, the gods of the Gentiles. I have committed myself to the God of the Jews. I am, I'm, in a sense, washing myself of my past, and, and I'm identifying myself with Judaism. And so that went on, went on for a long time until this kind of wild-eyed, crazy-haired guy named John shows up, and he's standing by a river. And he's yelling out, not to Gentiles anymore to be washed, but he's yelling out to Jews, you need to get washed for the cleansing of your sins. 
God's about to do something great and miraculous, and you're going to get left out of it because you think you're in, you're in just because of your birthright. But I'm telling you, you're far from God. You need to get baptized. You need to get washed. You need to identify with this message publicly for the repentance of your sins. And so right in that river, right where kids were playing and women were doing their wash, people would start to come and they'd start to say, John's got me right. I'm a Jew by birth, but I'm far from God. I'm going to identify with this message publicly in front of everybody, and I, I'm, going to, I'm going to get right with God through this, and, and, and I confess my sin, and I repent. And so John's calling all these people into the water, and one day, one day on the banks, shows Jesus. And John sees him, and he goes, I can't baptize you. I can't even carry your sandals. And Jesus says, no, no, you don't get it. You need to baptize me. And he goes into the water and John baptizes him. Why? Did Jesus need his sins forgiven? Well, he didn't because he didn't sin. What Jesus was doing is saying, I identify with the message of John the Baptist. And from that point forward, what started to happen was Jesus' disciples started going around Jerusalem, baptizing people into the name of Jesus. Why? Because people were beginning to identify with Jesus. It was a ceremony, it was a dunking, it was a washing, it was a public identification with who this man was. And so that's what scripturally baptism means. It's just an outward reflection of an inward truth. That's why we do this publicly. That's why we have the newspapers come. That's why I want you to bring your families and friends. This is a, I am identifying with Jesus in his life, in his death as I go into the water, and in his resurrected life when I come out of the water. And I'm doing it publicly. But what happens is baptism takes on all these other things. I, you know, if you're coming from a Catholic background, I know this can be very tricky, right? Because you've been reared with thinking of baptism one way. The Catholic Church teaches that children, because they're born um, with mortal sin, they're born with original sin, if the sin isn't cleansed by baptism, if that child should die before it's baptized, well, it's not going to heaven, um, and, and the church ran into problems with that. So the church actually uh, has a teaching where it created a state called limbo. And if children die before they're baptized, they, their souls go to limbo. And the, the church, because that became difficult for them, they've actually over time amended those rules. But I, this is why we get calls in the church office on a regular basis. You know, my, 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 my daughter had a baby. My son, my son had a baby. Can you baptize it? Quickly. I have a friend whose who's, uh, who's mother, um, who's very, very strong Catholic, and she actually took each of their kids when they were babysitting um, down to the Catholic church to have them baptized because she was afraid. And this is a mother, this is actually my brother-in-law's, this is Dan's, Dan's mom, uh, because, because she didn't want that baby to go to hell. And she loved her grandchild. And so here's what I want you to tell you. That's not in the scripture. That's not in the Bible. Now, it's a church teaching, but it's not in the Bible. So if you're fretting because your baby's not been baptized, based on the authority of Scripture, I'm telling you, you're okay with that. Now, there are a lot of folks that, that baptize babies for another reason. Um, this is why I was baptized in, in the Presbyterian church as a baby. And it's looked at as a covenant sign, not unlike circumcision was for, for young Jewish babies. They were circumcised as a, as a seal, as a covenant, as a promise of being part of the household of God. We do that in our church, essentially, when we dedicate children to God. But here's what we do. We believe that based on what the scripture says, that somebody, when they're old enough to understand what it is they're doing, 
we don't have a specific rule on that. You know who the best judge of that is, parents? You. I mean, we can come up with some. It's probably not one, right? But when your kid, when you believe that your child has had a, is at a point in its life where it understands the depth and the gravity of what they're doing, they're, they're surrendering their life the best that they know it to Jesus Christ, they should publicly come forward and be baptized. That's a cool thing. Each of my kids have always decided on their own what year they were going to be baptized. I never pushed them to it. They, every one of them came to me on their own and said, I think this is the year I want to get baptized. So that's the deal for us. That's how we do it. But you've got, we as a people have got to get off the fence. And you get off the fence by coming publicly before it and saying, I'm not going to ride this anymore. This is a dangerous place for me to be. And you come forward and you get in the water. Ben, come on up. You were given baptism cards when you guys came in this morning. As I told you, I, we, we have so many baptisms. I'm so excited about this. The elders yesterday, we were like aghast at, in a good way about how many people were coming forward. But here's the deal. I want you to understand something. Jesus Christ died for you. And he died very publicly for you. And what he's calling you to do is this is a step of faith. Jesus himself was baptized as a step of faith to come forward, to make a decision, to make it public. There's going to be a couple of baptisms next week. There's going to be one that I think will take your breath away. It took mine away. Um, and it will be encouraging for everyone to see when you tell your story and you share your story. And you don't have to say much. You don't have to say much at all if you don't want to. But these stories are what move us. But I just want, I just, I just want to encourage. I don't know who here has sitting on the fence this morning. Maybe you think that you haven't been good enough for God. Maybe you think, maybe it's all the religious stuff. I remember when I called my mom and I said, hey mom, I'm getting baptized next week. You want to come to it? And she, first thing she said, right? I baptized you as a baby. Um, and she didn't mean it mean, but it's just like that thing, right? Like, uh, I want to encourage you to follow Jesus in this, to make a decision and to get off the fence. Let's stand up and celebrate together.